As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Steiniger. Today we talked with Lance Wally, the CEO of Chargeify and the former CEO of Engine Yard. And he talked with us about the whole idea of hiring friends. Um, Michael, what do you think of his uh, opinion on that? Yeah, it's, um, it's that middle, that gray area that no one talks about. Everyone either says black and white hire your friends don't hire your friends here's why but he actually talks about when you do hire your friends what to do what expectations to set up which is the most important part um because that probably is what happens in that gray area where someone forms the opinion that i am never going to hire friends and had they just set up the expectations the situation could have been completely different so um i really enjoyed this part of the conversation hearing about the growth of engine yard was um 
It was interesting. It was a story I hadn't heard before. Yeah, let's get into it. Before we get started, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Hover takes all the hassle and friction out of registering your next domain name. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife, Carmen. Hey, babe. Yeah? I need a new website. All right, well, you need to, to get a domain name. <sighs> How do I do that? Do you have a domain name? Yes. No. 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 I don't. Okay. <laughs> I need one. Just use my Hover account. What's what's a Hover? So Hover, H-O-V-E-R, uh-huh. dot com. Okay. And just search for, for whatever domain you want. Oh, that's it? Yeah. Okay, I can do that. Go to Hover.com, get 10% off your entire first purchase by using the code so easy that's hover.com and the code so easy CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple and easy for those of you just getting started CodeShip has a generous free plan with five private projects included and 100 builds per month not enough you get 20 percent off three months just for being a rocket ship listener Plus, the team over at CodeShip spent the past few months talking to customers and just launched a complete redesign of their app with better usability. Go to CodeShip.com slash RocketShip to sign up today. Customer.io is a modern email platform built for startups. Go to Customer.io slash RocketShip to start sending emails that convert. I'd love to hear about, um, I mean, you mentioned that you out, uh, engineered outgrew you and even just kind of how you knew um, that, yeah, like... It was time for you to to step aside. I guess as the the uh, the CEO. Well, I mean, I knew it. The board said, "Get out, or we'll kill you." No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's not that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no hard, steadfast rule there. Like we had reached about 85 people. The uh, the the investors that we were talking to for Series B, like Series A, was relatively small. It was it was three and a half million from benchmark capital. And then, uh, but we had, my friend Tom and I who started it, we had talked even, even before taking their money, like, Hey, this may happen. And we're old enough to be adult about it and blah, blah, blah. Um, so long story short, you know, fast forward a year after taking series A or whatever it was, uh, series B was going to be 15 and a half million or whatever it was. And so we heard through the back channel that some of those potential investors were, they weren't demanding that like, Hey, let's get a more seasoned CEO. They were just saying, they were basically saying to Benchmark, you know, have you, has senior management thought about getting a more seasoned CEO? And I don't even know if they were in a terrible hurry, but anyhow, the topic came up. Um, and we had grown really quickly. Our market had changed a bit. Our customer profile had changed and gotten more formal, et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, Tom and I, again, my co-founder at Engineer. Uh, having already spoken about it. And then, of course, it came up again. So the idea was, it's like, okay, you know, smart people are sending us a signal here. Um, and if it makes sense, you know, if it makes sense for the company and for my stock, for me to step aside to play a different role and have someone come in to take it the next few years, um, you know, I was willing to give that a shot. Like, I, I wasn't going to block it. Time will tell. I mean, it's still a, an independent company. And uh, one of its main competitors, Heroku, got bought by uh, Salesforce. Um, so time will tell, like what the ultimate. It, it's like I don't even know yet what the, how the story ends and whether or not, like you know, was that the right time to leave? You know, should I have stayed another year? Um, whatever, you know. So we'll see. Because the interesting thing is, is they just replaced their CEO 
again about a month ago. Another, so John Dillon, the guy that came after me, you know, he, he gave it his five years or whatever, four, four, four or five years. Um, and now there's a new gentleman in there. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I just, I don't know yet, you know, should I have stayed on longer or was it exactly the right thing to do? Um, so it's like, I mean, he's John Dillon definitely had more experience, you know, taking it, you know, up the next rung or two, they, they bought another company or two, they expanded the, the team even further, um, tried a lot of different things. So who knows? I, I literally can't judge yet. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you'll ever know, you know, I guess you're right. Right. I mean, it, it's impossible to know like how a different set of decisions would have, you know, where the line would, you know, where the path would have led, you know, five years on now. Yeah. Um, I think Tom and I and Jay and, and Ezra, the other two, you know, there were four founders all together. I think we actually did a good job. I mean, we, we saw a market need and, and ran with it, uh, super scrappy in the early days, uh, then took VC. I think we remained relatively scrappy, but took VC, uh, took a couple rounds. Um, you know, I, I, I am proud of what we did as far as responding to what the market wanted. Um, it is true that as we started reaching larger and larger customers, I remember a shift being really obvious when we had had a small outage of some sort on some of our servers and there was a customer really angry at us. Um, and we had a a conference call with the customer, um, and the long story, you know, I'll say long story short many times, but (laughs) long story, long story short. Um, I remember that like we, it was me and I don't know, a couple other people around, a, a, you know, one of those famous polycom triangular phone things, um, talking to someone who was a moderate sized customer. You know, they were probably spending like a few K a month or whatever. Um, and the person on the other end of the line, he and his team, you know, they had come from very buttoned down places. They'd come from Intel and, uh, you know, GE or whatever, th- those kinds of companies. And I remember him like grilling me on like, you know, what was our process to handle these things did we have it written could he get a copy of it how often did we do a, a drill like if a power supply fails on a server was there a, a a written process for this was it practiced how long did it take for people to get from wherever they were sitting to wherever the power supplies are stored and how long did it take to get to the server and put it in and, and like in his world like the, that's that's how tight you are like you don't just say hey we'll replace the supply as quickly as we can you've, you've done it every three or six months or whatever. And you know that like you've drilled it with your employees and, and you know that you'll, and so I remember him finally like asking, you know, well, Lance, it's like, I was CEO at the time. I remember him saying, you know, how long do you think it should take from the moment an alarm goes off somewhere to the moment that machine's back up and running? And in my, you know, I was techie enough. I've, I had helped rack servers. I, I knew that it, you know, the, if you're racing against the clock from the time that an alarm goes off to, you know, and we're not even at the data center, right? But there's other people there, but you have to, you know, someone has to call someone and say, Hey, go replace this power supply. And someone has to know that it's server 13 and rack seven, you know, whatever. And someone has to know where to find server 13 and rack seven. Like in my mind, the total time could be probably like 10 minutes. And that would actually be probably pretty good like in my mind. It's like, just think about you being in that situation, you or some team of people and, you know, powering it down, replacing the supply, powering it back up. Um, anyhow, so I said, uh, <laughs> he's like, how long should it take? And I'm like, uh, you know, he, he knew I probably didn't even really know the answer. And I'm like, I, you know, I think about 
probably, you know, when I think it through, you know, from the alarm, running around buildings, grabbing power supply, power off, power, 10 minutes, you know, and there was like this uncomfortable silence and like a, he did the, (sighs) and he's like, he exhaled and he's like, 10 minutes. He's like, Lance, it's like that, you should have that down to like no more than two minutes. Like, or whatever the heck he said, that they had it down to at Intel or something. Um, and I just remember that that was one of the moments where I realized that, like, wow, it's like we started out these literally only, you know, 18, 24 months before, max. We had started out being this rebel entity that was going with all these new things. Rails, Ruby, Rails, Zen virtualization, which wasn't even 1.0 when we first stood it up on servers. Um, we were, you know, we were doing a lot of new stuff. Like virtualized servers were new. AWS didn't exist yet. Um, Ruby and Rails was nascent. It wasn't trusted. So in the early days, like we and our customers were all bleeding edge, little guys, accepting of risk, you know, risk tolerant. Um, in literally just a couple of years, um, it things were shifting to where, which was a testament to the success of Rails, right? It's like in the early days, in the early days, a lot of sales calls included talk about whether or not Rails can be trusted, you know, whether or not Ruby can be trusted. Um, and anyhow, so as we were, as it was becoming accepted and then getting into bigger places, the customer profile was changing. And, you know, we still had lots of small, fun customers, but clearly like that call was like the moment where I, I already had been feeling it, and it was like, wow, we really are. Not all customers are like this guy, but we're clearly reaching a set of customers that wants us to be a different organization. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country, or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. How did you get to that point? Like, um, was it was it recommendation, word of mouth? Um, how did you start off as this rebel company and quickly become someone that everyone or, or large organizations are willing to trust. Uh, it's interesting. And so how did we, um, well, I mean, I guess, shoot, I don't even know how to answer it. Like we start, you know, we started out knowing my friend Tom knew that, or, and he's a good guy at seeing, um, uh, patterns early. Um, he very early saw Ruby on rails is going to be important. Um, and, and virtualization is going to be important. And so it was kind of, you know, again, he, he was the genesis of it. He, and then pretty shortly after that, he came to me and said, do you want to help me grow this thing? Because I tend to be the guy who have a technical background, but I wind up being the guy that just holds the, everything together. Like, and as a, as a business grows, and he and I have known each other for 20, 25 years, as a business grows, I tend to be the guy that makes sure that, that the bills get paid, the lights stay on, people get hired, all that, but I can still hold my own in a tech conversation because I used to be a developer. Um, he tends to be the guy who like, you know, he's on top of the technology, he sees things early, etc. So we make a good pair. 
Um, and, and by this, and then of course, after like six months, we'd also brought in these guys named Jay and Ezra and Jay was a fantastic low level guy, technology stack wise. Like he knew how routers worked, why they worked, how you're going to put a, a rack of stuff together that has SAN servers and web servers and app servers and load balancer, all that Jay knew that stuff inside and out. Ezra was another key guy. I guess this all kind of answers your question. Ezra was a key guy because Ezra Zygmuntovich, um, he was, I think he might have been one of the first to deploy Ruby on Rails apps for anyone professional. He he had lived up in, I think, Spokane, Washington, and had deployed it for a few customers, including their local newspaper. Um, And he wrote an early book on deploying Rails apps. And so just by virtue of being there kind of early and doing some stuff early and writing a book, you know, he, he became a respected guy. And long story short, I said I'll say that a lot, right? Uh, he, uh, <laughs> Tom found both Jay and Ezra via the internet. He found Ezra. And we needed someone on board that, was, that knew the part Ezra knew, like the whole stack, deploying apps. The fact that he wrote a book was kick-ass. Um, he, he was a speaker at RailsConf and other things, uh, another huge bonus. And so we basically just decided, hey, we want to be the rack space for Rails. That was our original motto. Um, we want to be like high-priced, high-touch, high-service, high-support, uh, you know, high-tech <laughs> um, for Rails. And Ezra giving, you know, Ezra at RailsConf, you know, said early on, like, hey, I've joined this thing called Engine Yard. Check it out. Here's what it does, blah, blah, blah. So with Ezra giving us PR with us doing, you know, Google AdWords or whatever the equivalent was back then, uh, we also sponsored lots of Ruby meetups around the country. Like back in the day, you could you could hand them a couple hundred dollars for pizza and beer for a meetup in Phoenix or whatever, like you know Syracuse, New York, um, and that you know. So it was early enough that like with those very kind of personal low cost efforts, you get the word out. Um, and so as Ruby on Rails, Ruby on Rails grew, like we were the, we were the premium brand, I guess. Um, and we grew with it, you know, the, the tide lifted us. Um, and we were what I think we probably were the earliest company to really start sponsoring things and, and keep our name out there. Um, and, and keep getting the message out there through different means that if you've got a real app and you care about deploying it professionally, we're the place to go. Um, yeah. And I remember seeing you guys everywhere and I wasn't even a rails developer <laughs> at the time. So it really did work. Yeah. And um, it's the funny thing is, is it yeah. didn't cost all that much. I mean, a lot of, we were, we were on the hook personally, you know, with credit cards and home equity for like servers and stuff and maybe some of the early payroll. But the irony is, is that like, again, back in those days, the most you could spend was a big splash at RailsConf, which was the most expensive thing. And, and the dollars got real there, like a, a booth and hotels and stuff, you might be starting to hit 10 or 20 K. But like in today's terms, now that the industry's matured and the dollars have gotten bigger, you know, 10 or 20 K is no longer seen as, as a lot of money. Um, and it was certainly kind of funny in a way that like you could with these little tiny local groups, they, they literally just wanted you to pay for pizza and beer or pizza and soda. Right. Um, and yeah, I remember yeah. one of the earliest things we sponsored was some sort of thing at IBM Almaden Center, whatever it's called, south of San Jose. Um, you know, there was some sort of Ruby conference going on. Um, and I, we might have paid 500 bucks, maybe 1000 And it, we had our logo on a wall by a, an entrance and some other appearances here and there. Again, it was all very like Wild West and things were cheap. 
um, the, the advantage we had was just that we had experience, you know, we knew that like, this is money well spent. It's not a lot of money and it's money well spent. Um, so that's how to answer your, oh, and then how do we make transition? I think was your question. Uh, Into the, like the big guys. Yeah. All that was a matter of doing was we, it, we felt it was our duty, especially after we took series a and moved the company down to San Fran. We felt that pushing the world to accept Ruby on rails was as important as anything else we could do. Cause if Ruby on rails fizzled or failed, then we failed with it. Um, and so we just continued to beat the drum with PR and sponsorships. And, and like I said, in every state, like for those literally first two or three years, a lot of part of the sales call conversation was just like answering the annoying question of, <laughs> you know, can I really trust this Ruby on rails thing? Um, and so it just simply, you know, it started out with like the quote unquote kid, you know, college kids who were willing to take risks. And then just little by little, like consultants would start using it for projects and clients would start accepting it for a little bit bigger project. And then, you know, somebody working at a big company would be allowed to try it for a small project and it would work okay for a year. And then, and then they would try it for another. And it was just one of those organic things where that we, you know, there was no, you know, there was no particular magic we did. It was just, we were helping push the idea that this is an okay technology. It's safe. It, it, it scales. Shit. I totally forgot how for years, like there was always this whisper of like, does it scale? Will it scale? Can it really scale? It's always every new scale. language. Yeah. Um, And so, for instance, if I remember back on our history, you know, for a while, for a year or two, on our payroll, we're like, what was it? The the teams varied in size over time. But on average, I think we we were fully supporting, you know, four guys or whatever working on Rubinius, which was another Ruby implementation. Um, We had two guys on the Rails core team, you know, full-time on the engineering payroll, full-time working on Rails. Um, there was some other project I think I'm forgetting, but the point is, is we were, we were investing, like we, we wanted to make sure that this thing grew and thrived and prospered. And we were willing to put our money where our mouth was in terms of payroll. Um, I, I will, <laughs> I'll take a little jab at some of the other companies out there. Um, you know, even some other ones that, that turned out to be more successful than us, but I, I don't know that anyone made the kind of, you know, hard dollar contribution, like, multiple people full-time on our payroll full-time on open source projects for ruby and rails it's like we were proud of the fact that like engineer i honestly think we were the only company making that kind of investment you know back in like 2000 what would it be probably 2008 2009 2010 those years um whether or not anybody else stepped up after that i don't know but i anyway like i said we, we it was it was yeah. part of our duty we thought um that's that's really cool. Um, I'd love to hear. We we talked a little bit before, um, or you mentioned before about hiring yeah, friends, yeah. and and I'd love to hear some of the stories or the lessons that you've learned around hiring friends at Engine. Yeah, of course. Uh, that's I could probably ramble on a long time, but uh, I hear a lot of people say like you should or shouldn't hire friends, and. After the engine art experience, I've had lots of little businesses, but after that experience, there, there's clear stories of good and bad. And I, I just don't, I no longer buy the idea that it's so simple as that you should or should not. Um, and the reality is, is, is that most small businesses, most businesses when they start out, you've got some friends. 
there's a high probability you have some friends involved. Um, it's like you'll have a friend who's the technical co-founder or the marketing guy or the salesperson or whatever. Like there's always some, you know, and then yeah. as we grew, we sucked in friends who were just look, you know, needed, wanted to work with us. And we needed people to help answer phones or rack servers or whatever. We needed people doing stuff. Um, so when I look back on it, you know, probably if I had to boil down one of the lessons, um, I had, we had several friends working there where that eventually they weren't working there. I'll put it this way. I could probably, I won't name people, but I could, I could count, you know, three or four friends and none of them are working there anymore. And some of them are still very much friends and some of them are not. And when I look back at what the kind of one of the key differences is, it's an expectations thing. Um, and I'll get to a lesson on top of that. But the expectations thing is, is that the ones who worked out better, we knew from the get-go that the company may outgrow you eventually. Um, once there's 100 people, you're not going to have a direct relationship with me anymore. Like you're going to be working for mm. – likely you're going to be working in some other team. And Tom and I were – we tried to be pretty clear that like we're not going to go for nepotism here. Like you're not going to be hired nor kept because you're a friend, um, and okay. as long and you set that up front, correct? With them? Um, yeah. And uh, some of them just kind of got it. Like f- with some of our friends, you didn't even have to say it. Like they they understood that's the way the world works, or at least it should. Um, and especially when we start taking VC and and there's board members and it's you know to to some degree not our not just our company anymore. Um, right. but again, we, we were trying to live up to the ideal that, that like, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't treat friends or family members a different way, especially once they're working for other people in the organization, you don't want their direct manager to feel like they're somehow special and they can't be properly managed. Right. Uh, which yes. includes potentially firing someone. Um, yeah. so we really want, and so what happened was, is that we, I had one long-term friend in particular great guy we're not friends anymore um unfortunately and he just didn't quite understand that and when i think back on it um the only thing i think where i kind of made a mistake is i was in san francisco he was here in sacramento um not super far apart but it it did mean that we didn't see each other as much as we had before and he wound up reporting to other people in the org um and you know we're as a company goes from zero to 85 people in a year, year and a half, obviously, you know, these things can happen, right? It's like, you just don't have the yeah. same time and exposure with all your friends, even if they're working for you. Cause another thing is we were like half our people are distributed. They're not all in one office. You can't just go out for a coffee and, and chat about stuff. It's like you're 90 miles apart. Um, anyhow. So as things grew, he really felt, at least emotionally, that he still worked for Tom and me. We're friends. I work for you guys. Um, the reality was is that this, you know, at, after a while, there were like a couple layers between um, me and him. Uh, and so things went, you know, to, to summarize it, things went sour over maybe a six-month period between he and his direct managers, Um they have, you know, they had brought up to Tom and me, co-founder Tom and me a couple times, like, hey, you know, and we had, we had said like, hey, you know, you, you, you know, you do whatever you need to do, like try to correct his course, correct any problems, but, you know, he's not protected. Um, and so, event, you know, it, it culminated one day with me 
walking to lunch in a place called South Park, which is an area of San Francisco, uh, walking to lunch with some other coworkers and my phone ringing. And it's my, my old friend from Sacramento saying, am I being fired? And me saying, I, I literally honestly don't know. Like, I, I don't know. There's like, there's a bunch of people between you and me. I don't, <laughs> and, uh, right. and so, and he was pissed obviously. And I was like, on my way to eat with coworkers and or, and or meet, like I couldn't just drop whatever I was doing. So I had to tell him like, Hey, I, I need to call you back in like a half hour or whatever. And, um, he was being fired and I'll always debate like whether or not his immediate manager should have told me, you know, that they kind of decided that they didn't, they thought it was better for me to not tell me that it had come to this. And, um, and of course, you know, I wanted to make sure they weren't just like, you want to make sure that obviously you don't have some wacko manager who's just firing people for no reason. Um, but barring that, it's like I think, you know, what they did was reasonable. He he had made some mistakes that he shouldn't have made. Um, he had done some things he shouldn't have done. Uh, nothing terrible, but I don't think they were out of line to to let him go. Um, it's a really tough lesson. It's a very tough lesson, um, and and so like yeah. he he wouldn't communicate with me for like a month. He finally agreed to have a coffee at a coffee house in Sacramento. And back in that day, I lived in San Francisco, but I came back here like every two or three weekends. Um, so to wrap up this part of the story, like we sat down and had a coffee. Uh, I had been I had been calling him and emailing him. I really wanted to know how he was doing. I was, to the best I could without rehiring him, I wanted to know how my friend's doing and see mm-hmm. if, if there was anything I could do to help, help him get another job. Um, you know, we had brought him on board and taught him a lot of skills he didn't have before that over the year or so he worked for us. Um, and I thought that he was smart. He was marketable. Like he could get another job and he, and we had taken him up a notch or two in terms of pay, in terms of career. Anyhow. So we sit down for a coffee, which again, I was super happy to finally like get him at a table for a coffee. <laughs> and, yeah. and I said, I started to speak and then he stood up, extended his hand and he said, it's been nice knowing you, you know, this is goodbye. Stay tuned. On Thursday, we bring you the second part of this amazing conversation. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for our newsletter, where twice monthly we send out actionable advice for entrepreneurs and exclusive links to AMAs with our guests. That's rocketship.fm. Sign up today.